You are listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. My name is Andreas Steno, and uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you back at the Macro Trading Floor. And as you know, this is the most actionable trading floor in the world. Hey guys, Alf speaking here. Uh, it's uh, August 25th of 2022. It's actually the day before Jackson Hole. And uh, we are going to chat about Europe first, if you don't mind, guys, because we talk all the time about US. Now, we had a couple of episodes on emerging markets. It's time to talk back about Europe. After all, I'm Italian, Andreas is Danish, so why not? Andreas, I know that you have quite a an interesting, let me call it even contrarian, whatever that means, take on the you energy situation at this stage. Can you please walk the audience through what, what do I mean here? Yeah. Um, I mean, f- first of all, it's to me obvious that Europe is stuck in a big mess. So let's just agree on that. Everybody agrees on that. Uh, but if we look at the flow situation in natural gas, I don't think it's as bad as uh, it's being reported. So uh, let's start with Germany. Uh, that's basically the country in question for, for, for most of the stories out there. Um, currently, they're building up uh, the storage of natural gas at a pace that we've never seen before. Uh, so the daily injections into the natural gas storages in Germany is record high today. Uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, you cannot rely on a storage throughout a winter. You need uh, a flow of natural gas to support the demand for heating, etc., cetera, uh, throughout the winter season. But in any case, the sort of outset is better than reported. Um, I'm pretty sure that all European countries will have very close to 100% uh, of storages filled by 1st of October. So wait before the deadline 1st of November set by the European Commission. Um, so in, in many ways, Europe is actually a bit ahead of the curve, uh, probably in anticipation of weak flows this winter. We have to acknowledge that. But uh, I mean, even with a material drawdown, a drawdown in, in, in flows from, say, November until March, uh, I would actually argue that um, it's fairly feasible that Europe makes it through the winter without um, big issues. Uh, of course, they've paid a truckload of euros or dollars, whatever, for, for, for the natural gas now being in storage. But, I mean, they've managed to secure the flows needed so far, even with Russia uh, trying to, to play a game of chicken against Europe here. So... I'm starting to get the sense that the consensus is getting too pessimistic on Europe. That's what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. So Andreas, you highlighted two interesting things. The first is a stock against the flow situation, which is a fair remark because obviously Europe isn't stupid and it knows there is a high risk that Russia will cut um, uh, flow to a certain extent. We don't know whether cut 100% or 80 or 70, but there, there will be probably politically driven cuts. So what the first thing you want to do is secure the highest possible stock ahead of winter as you can. Then obviously as flow is going to be likely lower than in the previous years, you are still going to have some troubles. But as long as your initial stock is relatively high, you can kind of try and navigate that. Not going to be a walk in the park, but stock versus flow is important. The other thing is when it comes to market implications. So the power of consensus is what I want to discuss with you for a second. Um, we read, uh, and I'm short the euro against the dollar, by the way. So I, sh- I should actually advocate for the opposite outcome, but I know I can be wrong. And in this case, it's consensus that is very interesting because people always believe they're trading against their absolute thesis. It's like, you know, they believe something, they put a trade on. If it works, it works. Not really. You're trading against what the 
average mind, also known as market, is pricing in at every point in time. So what do you make of that consensus being actually uh, priced in euro and European assets? Do you think it's, how bad do you think it's priced in as a scenario, as a model outcome? I, I, for, first of all, if we look at the uh, foreign exchange picture first and the positioning, uh, then at least according to the CFTC data, um, the positioning is not overly bearish in euro. Uh, I think we're around minus 10% of, of open interest. Um, so, I mean, we've clearly seen an, a more negative um, positioning in the euro um, in, in other instances, for example, in 2011, 2012, uh, during the debt crisis. Uh, so... In particular in FX, I'm not sure that the consensus is overly extreme. Uh, but if we look at positioning in equities, that might be a different story. Um, it seems as if uh, the average institution is heavily underway in um, in German bonds uh, and um, also in German equities. So ba basically both in, in fixed income and FX space. Uh, quite an interesting scenario um, that... Basically, institutions they don't like any asset class in Europe, um, so th there is no place to hide if if these sort of consensus expectations they they, they form true. And uh, uh, yeah, we have also heard Andreas that Bridgewater has waged a huge short uh, in European stocks. That was a public news, I think, a month or two months mm. ago already. Obviously, they declared a short side of the book, but you know, Bridgewater is probably long something against that. It's not an outright trade because it was absolutely huge in terms of size, but the tilt is definitely to be short. Uh, Europe probably a bit outright and mostly relative value against something else. So there are large institutions that are not really liking European assets right here, right? Yeah, and and I mean it's it's also very transparent what I have uh, in 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 my portfolio right now. I'm being long the um, S and P 500 versus being short the DAX. So I'm not talking my own book here uh, when I start to 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 look into the thesis of of Europe potentially rebounding relative to the very gloomy expectations. Uh, but it's something that I'm on the watch for because I mean no matter which institution, which portfolio manager, um, which macro pundit I speak to, we basically all agree that Europe is stuck in a mess. Fair enough. But I mean, we need further downside surprises for this to materialize in the price action. And it becomes trickier and trickier and trickier to surprise to the downside when everybody agrees on a downside scenario. Uh, we saw that today with the IFO index out of Germany. Um, it actually delivered a, a small positive surprise uh, due to the very gloomy expectations uh, being penciled in, in the consensus number ahead of it. So I think we're slowly but surely getting there. Um, I'm not yet in the camp of actually betting on it. But um, I think the timing will be right during the fourth quarter of this year. Look at my mate Andreas endorsing one of the macro compass motto, which is on my shirt, be humble or the market will humble you. I mean, short the DAX, long uh, the S&P or short the euro against the dollar is a trade that will benefit actually from a worse outcome in Europe. But as always, as investors, we need to be wary of what can go wrong. And we always ask the question to people who will come as a guest on the macro trading floor. So let's ask it to ourselves, right? And your <laughs> analysis might suggest that both in a positioning to a certain extent, but also on an energy situation, a lot of negativity might already be priced in. Doesn't mean it can get worse, but you know, it's a good thing to know. Jumping to the US now, because mm. we talked for seven minutes about Europe, which must be a record on this show. <laughs> uh, we, need to talk, we need to talk about the US now. I'm like, I'm, I'm itching. I'm itching. Um, so the news, I think, because we are just ahead of Jackson Hole by the time of recording is the 25th of August. I don't think it makes a lot of sense to talk about US rates or equities. Let's wait for Powell's speech tomorrow. 
we'll address the next week, but we had quite a big news, which was that the, the Biden administration is, you know, basically forgiving uh, some student loans. Mm. There are criteria, of course, it's not an, an outright student loan amnesty, but it is a forgiveness of student loans. Mm. And Andreas, I want to get your take on what do you make of that? First of all, I, I think this is another confirmation that we are in a new fiscal regime compared to um, the fiscal regime we had ahead of the COVID crisis. Uh, I think it's much more common now to talk about uh, debt amnesties. It's much more common to talk about the fiscal engine being the engine of the economy. Um, so it actually feels a, a little bit like the vibes from the 70s or the 80s are back to a certain extent when it comes to this discussion. Um, and I think this is a, basically a new hint that um, politicians warning to grab power in this kind of environment, they will simply need to um, to come up with bargains such as this one uh, to to um, convey a, a, a message that the um, voters would uh, would like to to vote for, uh, and I think it's the same issue in Europe to a certain extent. We should also expect a lot of focus in the coming months on energy checks to households and all that stuff. So basically, trying to to take away the bad part of the current scenario from regular people, um, and this is another hint of, of that from the US just in relation to an old debate on, on, on student debt. Yeah, I have uh, two comments. The first is a private sector loan creates both uh, an asset and a liability for the private sector. It just increases basically a balance sheet. When as private sector citizens we or households or corporates we borrow, we literally expand our balance sheet as the entire private sector. Now what, what the US government is trying to do is to eliminate the liability attached to it, which is a very convenient way, basically, to make sure that net assets for the private sector are increasing. That happens as well when governments do deficits. They basically transfer net assets to the private sector, which ties well with what you're saying, Andreas, which is that, you know, the government balance sheet has been very uh, little used in huge sizes and especially counter-cyclically speaking, has been mm. very little used over the last 10 to 12 years. Um, and I think a lot was left to do for the private sector itself. So private sector leverage was the lever we tried to use to sort of boost economic activity. After the, the great financial crisis, the private sector had to deleverage basically because of mm. the event we had. And the, the public sector slowly but surely picked the tab on, but it really wasn't convincing until the pandemic. And the pandemic really seems to have changed a bit the reaction function from policymakers, but I always wouldn't forget that you know, once you do five trillion of fiscal stimulus and you see the effect and the New York Fed just came up with a paper that basically shows that about 60% of US inflation is demand driven, aggregate demand driven, effectively fiscal policy, fiscal mm. stimulus driven. I think you're going to be a bit reluctant to do huge sizes, but you're going to be much less reluctant than before to do it more often because you realize you see the boost you can deliver to the private sector by using the public sector balance sheet. And these examples, although politically motivated, mostly because of the midterm elections, could be one example of politicians being less shy in using fiscal policy more often. Doesn't mean they have to do five trillion every time, but they'll probably do it more often than mm. this. That's my take as well. So the bottom line probably is that we should expect slightly tighter monetary policy compared to the uh, past decade, but easier fiscal policy. That makes this interesting. <laughs>
because it's certainly a game changer to the uh, financial environment that we had through the 2010s. <laughs> yeah, in my it, humble opinion. Yeah, yeah, it's basically the opposite. Yeah, take Europe, where fiscal policy was basically almost always um, structurally tight, especially in the north of Europe, and North mm. Europe was obviously trying to trigger the same stance in the south of Europe. And you had monetary policy, which was, was quite lax, right? And now mm. you're going to take and probably reverse that or try to marginally reverse some of that. It has implication for global macro. Talking about that, I think the guest of this week will be able to tie in very well. Politics and macro is a very well-known economist that moved from Wall Street to Main Street right now. Uh, something very close to my heart. So uh, let's, uh, let's get him on the show. So... Very happy to introduce the guest of the week on the macro trading floor is David Wu. Normally needs no introduction, but I'm still going to make one. David runs strategy and research departments for many large banks, Citigroup, Barclays, Bank of America, amongst others. He now uh, runs instead his own research-based company, which is called David Wu Unbound, because he is unbound now. He's not dependent on any bank anymore. David, uh, nice to have you here. Thank you, Alfonso, for having me. Pleasure. So on the macro trading floor, the first question is generally a very macro overarching question. So I want to ask you, uh, we had a two quarters in a row, officially speaking now, what was confirmed today of negative GDP growth in the US. Uh, it's on everybody's mind that this means a recession, but you seem to have a bit of a different view when it comes to where we're heading here. So can you please elaborate how do you see growth performing over the rest of the year? Yeah, I think so. I mean, first of all, I think, you know, I just want to say, you know, already four months ago, I think I was among the first people to say we were going to get a recession before Thanksgiving. And by the way, we did get a recession, a very short recession, Q1 and Q2. So from that point of view, I think I was ahead of the market, but I now think that Q3, we're going to see reacceleration. And the reason is very simple. I mean, the reality is that wages are growing at about 7% in the US, which is near a 20-year high, right? So nominal income is growing at 7%, okay? All of a sudden, food and energy prices have come off from their high. In fact, you know, in the third quarter, we're going to see negative growth rate for food and energy prices, which means that CPI inflation is going to be flat. If anything, it's probably going to be slightly down, okay, because of the disproportionate impact from food and energy, which means that actually, in real terms, wages are going to actually accelerate, which means the real purchasing power of American households is going to accelerate, so from that point of view, to the extent that household spending is two-thirds of GDP, when two-thirds of GDP is going to accelerate, you know what? The economy definitely is due for a big rebound. Now, on top of that, we're getting more stimulus, right? Over the last month, at least 11 different states have announced basically stimulus checks that are already in the basically post being sent to households in order to help them weather the, uh, the energy shock. That's what the states say. On top of that, you probably just read yesterday that Biden has decided to forgive $10,000 of student debt for anybody making less than $125,000 and $20,000 of debt forgiveness for some lower income, basically, uh, students. That we're talking about another 300 to 400 billion dollars of stimulus that would go right into the system because anybody who's carrying on this, carrying this debt on their basically back, they're going to say, great, 
you know, it's not even a question of basically getting a check in the mail. It's just like, well, you no longer have to send any checks and then this debt has been completely forgiven. You're going to go out and spend that money. So all in all, I'm just telling you that everything is poised for a complete reacceleration in the third quarter. In fact, it would be very difficult for me to see to don't to not see basically a reacceleration. Because what we need to also understand is that we've got the midterm election coming up basically in November. And this administration, Biden's you know, approval rating has recovered somewhat. Now it's back about 40%. I think this whole student debt forgiveness is exactly geared towards basically trying to, you know, get the young people to come out to basically to vote for the Democrats, you know, come November. So I think from that point of view, I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that we're seeing basically very, very pro-cyclical counter, basically cyclical fiscal policy heading into the election. And that's going to give the economy another jolt. So again, it doesn't make me bullish the U.S. economy long run. I'm just talking about strictly about the third quarter. And then this is especially important for the Federal Reserve because it's going to put even more pressure on the Fed to keep hiking rates. And this is why I think ultimately this is going to be very bad news for financial markets because this is where we're now definitely at a point of the cycle where good news is bad news for markets. David, this story is very compelling and it's also out of consensus. If you look at analyst expectations out there, there is some rebound baked into the cake, but you seem to be much more optimistic, let's say on Q3, especially on Q3, compared to other analysts out there. Let me try and play devil's advocate for a second, right? And uh, one of the reasons why somebody would feel a bit more bearish on economic growth going forward is because tighter monetary policy and tighter financial conditions normally take a little bit of a while to play into the economy, right? And as the Federal Reserve started effectively in December last year, one might argue that uh, coincident and lagging indicators haven't yet fully reflected tighter financial conditions. What's your take on the lag between the Federal Reserve monetary policy implementation and real economic growth? I think that's an excellent question. You know, people tell me, oh, well, if you look at money supply growth year on year in the U.S., has collapsed over the last, whatever, nine months, ever since they started, whatever, buying less, right? But however, if you go back the last two and a half years, money supply is up like 40%. In fact, if you actually look at money supply as a, you know, basically to GDP ratio, you know, it's absolutely through the moon. So from that point of view, you could argue that forget about the tightening. I would even argue that the easing of monetary policy during the pandemic has not yet worked through the system yet. So from that point of view, that would call for, you know, definitely higher inflation. Okay. And this is why I think, you know, you're right. I mean, you know, all of a sudden everybody's become, you know, sort of uh, Milton Freeman, monetarist and so on and so forth, talking about basically, you know, but as I said before, I think Milton Freeman comes with a lag. And I think right now, the reality is that there was such excess during the pandemic that what we're seeing right now is like nothing. And I think also, we also have to bear in mind something else, which is I think is equally important. You know, normally, okay, interest rates go up, you go into the recession. And why is that? That's because, you know what, when this usually throughout basically the, uh, the expansion phase, you know, households take on leverage, businesses take on leverage, banks take on leverage, so that when interest rates do go up, you know, households get into trouble, businesses get into trouble, and banks get into trouble. This time, this is simply not the case. 
We spent the last 10 years, you know, it's actually interesting. If you look at household balance sheet, look at, you know, basically household net worth as a share of GDP up in disposable income, for example, is right now at an all-time high. So household balance sheet in the U.S. is the strongest position in 20 years. If you look at corporate balance sheet, it's at the strongest position ever. If you look at bank balance sheet, it's all-time basically strong, okay, because of 10 years of Dodd-Frank and so on and so forth. As a result, you know, as a result, the private sector is not particularly basically sensitive to higher interest rates. Because the reality is this, all the basically leverage has been shifted onto the government balance sheet over the last 15 years. And government simply are not going to stop borrowing simply because rates are higher, as you just saw. They just, you know, Biden just basically wrote a check, another $400 billion on top of the, whatever, the $340 billion last week from the, uh, the, the, the climate bill. So from that point of view, this is the most important thing. I would argue the ability of the U.S. economy to withstand higher interest rates is probably at the highest level in 20 years, at least. On top of that, I don't have to tell you, over the last six weeks, we have seen steady easing of financial conditions. Because everybody says, oh, wow, recession is coming, so therefore long-term rates go down, so that the stock market come roaring back, so that credit spreads come right back in. Like, you know what? <laughs> you know what? I have no doubt, like, Powell is going to, you know, basically a speech tomorrow thinking, like, what the hell is going on here? We need the market to help us to basically tighten financial conditions so that we have a fighting chance of dealing with this inflation. Instead, the market is working against us. So from that point of view, I'm going to have to think that Powell is sitting there thinking right now, how the hell am I going to talk the market around? So this is why I still think, well, it's true, rates have already backed up quite a bit this week, as I was expecting last week. But I still think that the message is going to remain pretty hawkish. Now, you talked about so many interesting things, uh, David. I want to pick one first, which is politics, because you mentioned a couple of times stimulus getting back into the economy through a couple of bills which have been recently signed. And you talked about how this interacts with midterm elections. And I know that your work is not only on economics, but it's a lot about politics as well, and how these two fields interact with each other. So I have to ask you, David, what's your take on midterms and what's your take on presidency going forward in the US? What are we going to see? What, what is the most likely path ahead of us? The reason why I'm concerned about this upcoming midterm election is because the United States right now, okay, has never been more polarized according to the work that I've done, okay? Now, I can tell you there is no doubt that the raid on Mar-a-Lago by the Democrats is going to basically, has opened a Pandora's box, which will be impossible for them to close. Listen, I mean, guys, you know, you know, I hope, I hope for America's sake that they found something in Mar-a-Lago with which they can incriminate Trump. If, th if they come up with nothing, this is going to be a big problem for the Democrats. But certainly, I think this is part of the same, basically, you know, the same pressure that's being brought on Trump and people around him to persuade him not to run in 2020, basically for because Trump looks like he's about to basically announce his candidacy for 2024. The Democrats are making it very clear they're going to do everything they can to stop this man. Now, I can tell you, it's actually very interesting because after the raid on Mar-a-Lago, Trump was trying to calm down his supporters, telling them not to overreact. 
because the way he sees it is very simple. Right now, of the 175 candidates who are running in the midterm, okay, who are backed by Trump, okay, have won their primaries. I'm talking about 93% of Republican candidates who have received Trump's blessing have won their primary <laughs> elections. I mean, that is a staggering number. I don't think people understand that. So Trump's basically whole entire focus right now, and rightly so, is getting these people in, basically, in office. And then guess what? The majority of these people, okay, th they are running on a platform for investigating, okay, the 2020 election outcome. <laughs> so my whole point here is this, right? There are only two outcomes in this midterm election. You know, if, you know, Trump-backed candidates get in, will even get into the House, okay? We have, and then the Republicans take over the House. I would say that that, okay, means that we're going to see the whole 2020 election, basically, outcome being completely, you know, re-examined, reinvestigated. That will basically tear the country apart, okay? That's one possibility. The other possibility is that the Democrats are going to do everything they can, to intimidate voters, intimidate, and basically try. And then, by the way, if the Republicans lose, let's say by not a decisive margin, by a small margin, and they think it's because whatever trick, whatever, you know, you know, they're any question about the conduct of the process of the election, I'm telling you the Trump supporters are going to go absolutely freak out, okay? So either way, I think this election because honestly, you know what? You know, right now, if you are actually trying to understand what really is going on in the U.S. in terms of the mood of the country, okay, 65% of Republicans in southern states said that they're in favor of seceding from the union, okay? 45% of Biden voters said they're in favor of breaking away from the union, you're Italian, you know, like for years that the Northern League has been talking about leaving, but their number is small. The U.S. number is now massive. There is no doubt in my mind that basically the U.S. ultimately, I think things are so bad right now, there is no turning back. There's no, that's it. We are going to be heading towards some kind of, you know, basically disintegration one way or the other. The only question now is how long it's going to take. <laughs> But I think this midterm election is going to be very important because I do think it's all going to be about the 2024 elections. And I think that people might take matters into their own hand in a way that, you know, you know, now it's true. The market didn't take that seriously in January 6th, okay, in 2020. But I think this time will be a very different story. So, David, you now depicted so far on the show a picture where economic growth, at least in the short term, you expect it to beat expectations or to rebound more than analysts expect. You expect quite a lot of political uncertainty with potential pretty fat tails event coming out of this political uncertainty. Now we just miss the Fed, at least in the US uh, discussion, because you were already pretty vocal talking about their willingness or ability to raise interest rates. Can you guide us a bit through what do you think the Federal Reserve will be doing over the next six months to 12 months? What's their approach and will they succeed in bringing down inflation? I think, listen, I think at this point, I mean, they've already told us what they're going to do. What they're saying is that they want to basically take a raise to 4%, 425, maybe 450. 
Okay. I think right now, the only issue is that the market apparently doesn't agree. <laughs> okay. Now, either because the market thinks that, you know, the Fed are basically, you know, cowards, you know, when it comes to basically inflicting too much pain on the economy, and that therefore the, the market doesn't believe the Fed has got the political capital to go to basically 4% or higher, or the market thinks that the probability of a recession is greater than what the Fed basically perceives it to be right now. I personally think, okay, I think at least in the short term, again, you know, the midterm election is still basically two months away, so I don't want to get completely caught up in that because, again, I don't think much is going to happen until we get to the election, okay? And I see this still mainly as a risk and anything else. In my central scenario, as the economy rebounds, okay, in Q3, we get another strong non-farm payroll number, a strong retail sales number. The market is going to start to rethink about recession risk in 2023 and above. Right now, what the market is pricing is rate cuts, right, in 2023, because the market thinks the recession is already going to get there once rates go to basically 350. I think, you know, I think the data that I'm expecting in terms of the rebound in August and the September data are going to be very decisive in that respect. Again, you know, I could change my mind on a week-to-week basis, but I do want to say, though, it's like I think that ultimately... 10-year rates will have to go to 350 or even 4%. I will ideally like to see 375. 375 will make me very happy because I think at that point, the market is pricing a lot, okay? I just think at 310, it's pricing nothing. It's pricing nothing. And the Fed, Powell is probably thinking right now, like, what does he have to do to talk it up? I mean, if you if you think about where rates are right now, David, right, the front end, as you correctly say, is kind of trying to price what the Fed is saying, not really completely. We heard Esther George today coming out and say, you know, guys, we are not barely even restricted. We'll have to go much higher than that. She's hinting at 4%, maybe even higher, as you discussed. And the front end of the bond market is not even at 4% right now as a terminal rate for Fed funds. The back end, though, is inverted, which means the market is expecting forward rates to actually be negative. It's expecting the Federal Reserve to cut and keep rates uh, lower going forward. So the problem, I think, from my side, to raise interest rates in the back end is that Powell needs to be convincing, or the economy needs to back him up. As you as you described, the private sector needs to prove that they can endure higher interest rates and economic growth can keep on delivering so that back end rates can go up as well. The other way to talk up interest rates at the back end is to do something with QT, so to use the balance sheet to try and steer the yield curve steeper, but that tends to be a very complicated uh, phenomenon. I wanted to ask you something about the QT part of the equation, right? I mean, quantitative tightening is accelerating. What do you make of that? What's the impact you expect quantitative tightening to have on uh, financial markets? I think that's probably what the Fed will have to basically resort to if they want to basically jack up long-term rates, right? Like by selling, accelerating, you know, the sale of longer maturity, basically, debt instruments. But you're right, I mean, to the extent that right now, the issue right now is that the market doesn't buy, you know, my view of a rebound in Q3. If the market did, the market wouldn't be rushing to price in recession as quickly as it's done. And I think from that point of view, this is why the data have to speak. You know, it's not going to be just about the Fed. This is why I'm not even arguing that you should go fade the flatten trade, right? You could argue, oh, wow, David, if you're right, why don't you just basically put on basically steepener? I don't want to do that only because I don't think the market is in a 
market will trade that way. If the Fed ends up surprising, you know, by doing 75, let's say, for example, at the next meeting, I think the curve is probably going to flatten more, given where things are right now. But I do think that this is why I think the curve trade makes very little sense to me. I know it's done very well for a lot of people this year because, oh, well, the Fed did, you know, at the start of the year, nobody thought the Fed was going to do 275 basis point hikes in like, you know, <laughs> two consecutive meetings. So being, to be long, to making money from flatteners, I think people simply got lucky. Actually, I really believe that, you know. And I think, whereas I think at this point, if you really think like me, this is a time to basically be looking to short basically just two year, or basically one year, one year forward, whatever it is. But I think, you know, I'm just talking about the front front end. I Because I think what people don't realize is this. There's something else. Let me tell you this. If we go back the last 70 years, right, if you look at, you know, there's been like 10, 11 Fed hiking cycles. I can tell you this one thing in common throughout all of these basically Fed hiking cycles. And that is the fact the Fed never stopped hiking rates until real Fed funds rate, that is Fed funds rate minus CPI, went above zero. Okay, went above zero. This has basically been the only thing in common among all these basically Fed hiking cycle. Right now, you know, CPI is still at 8.5%, right? So from that point of view, they'll have to go a lot higher. <laughs> I mean, unless you think, unless the market thinks that the CPI 8.5 is gonna be at, I don't know, 3.5%, you know, basically by the start of next year. It's difficult for me to believe that the Fed is going to stop and it's going to start basically cutting rates that quickly. By the way, there's something else I think a lot of people sort of like overlook, which is that when you look at the July CPI number, you know, the one thing that caught me by surprise was the fact that, you know, core services inflation, which is what I care about more than anything else, came off actually quite sharply. Okay, but let me tell you, the reason was because airfare dropped 8% month a month. I mean, that's huge. This never ever happened before, by the way. And I don't believe this is the beginning of a massive collapse in airfare. <laughs> okay, I think more likely because of COVID, because of all the congestion airport, a lot of people probably canceled. Which means that actually, I suspect in August, September, things are probably going to go back to normal which means that core services inflation probably will continue to edge higher. It's right now 5.5% is near the highest level in, I don't know, 30 years. That's what we care about. What we care about, what the Fed cares about is wage growth and core services inflation. And by the way, because the service sector is highly labor intensive, it tends to basically track wage growth very closely. That's why when wage growth is a seven, <laughs> you know what? Of course, service inflation is going to be moving that direction as well. This is why for me to think that Fed funds rate is going to peak at 3%, it's just like completely nuts. It's completely nuts. So one comment before I ask the final and most important question for the audience, which is what's the trade, is that one thing you said, I think it's very interesting, is that the market at some point at price almost 75 basis point cuts by the Federal Reserve next year. The Federal Reserve is facing inflation way above their mandate. Core services inflation, very sticky components are pretty high. So not only the level of inflation, but also the composition is very worrisome for the Federal Reserve. And in the past, they never stopped hiking when 
real observed Fed funds, let's say, went into positive territory, as you said. Now, the other way for them to achieve that would be not to raise interest rates to 5%, but to maybe go to 4 and stay there for longer until CPI comes down and this observed real Fed funds rate become positive again. That's also not priced. So for in order for front-end yields to surprise on the upside, one way is for them to hike to 5% or more. The other is if they hike three and a half, which is maybe already priced in, but if they keep it there for longer against market expectations of cuts, that's another way to make money of the trade. Now, I don't want to fully anticipate what's your uh, uh, tradable idea, but summing everything up and given all the views that you discussed, where do you think the best risk reward macro expression lies over the next three to six months? I think, you know, listen, I mean, obviously, you know, short term, there's going to be a lot of volatility around tomorrow, Jackson Hole, and so on and so forth. But I think, you know, in general, as I said before, I like basically, you know, selling two-year notes. You know, I think, you know, I think from that point of view, two-year notes, I think, you know, the bond yields should go to, you know, 3.7, 4%, I think that's the sort of the, the area that will make me feel better about what the market is priced. I think, you know, at the same time, I told you, like, you know, I, um, I like gold, you know, as a sort of like a, an insurance against political turmoil in the U.S. I don't, want to, I don't want to get in on that trade right now, but certainly I think anything between 1650 and 1700, I think becomes very interesting level to get in on that trade. Thirdly, I think, you know, I'm following the developments in China very closely. I think obviously, especially in the social media, people have gone crazy. People are talking about a housing collapse. You know, there's no doubt, like people don't understand what really is going on in China. I think what is going on in China is a manufactured housing crisis, okay? And the government has cracked down on basically real estate developers, you know, in order to essentially stamp out, okay, speculative real estate development. China understands very well that the housing market is central to China's basically effort to escape the middle income trap. They're not going to basically throw out the baby with the bathwater. So from that point of view, given that inflation is non-existent in China, actually core inflation in China is less than 1%. There is a lot of room for China to ease monetary policy. So I think from that point of view, while I see the Fed hiking rates more aggressively, I think China should be and probably will be cutting interest rates more aggressively. I think rate differential is going to push the dollar higher and the RMB weaker. In fact, I think you know both China and the U.S. are begging for a weaker RMB. The U.S. needs a weaker RMB in order to basically reduce the prices of whatever imports from China. China needs a somewhat weaker RMB in order to provide a bit of a boost to its export as it deals with the housing slowdown. So I think from that point of view, when both countries need it that bad, you know what? Higher dollar China is the path of least resistance. So I can see seven, at least as a minimum, even 720 on dollar China. So, David, when I look at the dollar China or the front-end dollar rates, effectively, we're assuming that uh, interest rates go up, especially the front-end in the U.S., that would boost both, of course, the two-year treasury short rate, but also the dollar CNY. One question we always ask here on the macro trading floor to guests, and it's generally the final one, what could go wrong with your trade? What could go wrong with your macro idea behind the trade? I'm very concerned about the geopolitics. I mean, I, I think, you know, in the last 20 years, we live in the world in which if you knew not you knew enough economics, you, you could have done reasonably well on Wall Street. It's become very clear to me in the last few years, like if you don't know politics, 
I don't care how much economics you know, you're almost destined to lose money. I'm just thinking about like, you know, so much of what we trade in the last six months was a direct result of, you know, basically the Western sanctions against Russia. You know, I mean, in fact, you know, <laughs> Europe basically committed suicide by, you know, basically imposing these sanctions on Russia. So all that, you, you have to understand about why the Europeans want to commit suicide. So that's a different story. But I think, you know, these geopolitical risks is very much on my horizon. I mean, obviously, on the Russian-Ukraine front, this is going to be very important because Russia, it looks like they're going on, they're planning a major land offensive. In my view, over the next basically four to six weeks, you will see much more decisive push by Russia into Ukrainian territory. I mean, as of this morning, there's talk about Russians already basically outside Nikolaya. Actually, I don't know what the Ukrainian counteroffensive against Kyrgyzstan is. It doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. But meanwhile, you know, Russia is moving actually uh, towards Nikolaya. You know, if they would basically take over Nikolaya, the next one would be basically Odessa, which will give Russia complete control of the Black Sea coast. Okay. Meanwhile, it looks like, you know, Russia is mobilizing troops. In fact, regular Russian troops to go after, you know, Kharkiv, which is on the uh, Russian-Ukrainian border. And that battle can get very, very bloody. So from that point of view, like, I mean, the, I mean, right now, Zelensky is still writing on support from the West. You know, when push comes to shove, you know, the West will still have to decide whether they want to cut him loose or they want to basically double down. You know, I think over the next few weeks, I suspect, you know, the pressure will be to double down. And that could see, you know, higher energy prices, higher natural gas price for Europe, you know, basically all sorts of things that bad things can happen because there's no doubt that until this war has basically played itself out, this is, remains a negative, you know, basically factor. Right now it's a negative but stable factor, but it could get actually, you know, <laughs> unstable if I'm right about this major confrontation to come. I think obviously Taiwan, China is another major basically event that could potentially just shatter everything. I do think that, you know, much of it is going to be riding on whether Congress goes ahead to push through the Taiwan Policy Act that will completely overhaul the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, which will really piss off the Chinese. I'm hoping that they're going to wait until after the midterm, you know, with the new Congress basically takes a seat before they push that thing through. But if they try to basically rush it, this will be also potentially very destabilizing for, you know, in terms of, you know. So I think from that point of view, I don't see any major economic risk on the horizon, but I see a lot of basic geopolitical risk. So these are things that I follow very closely. David, this has been a great interview, but the guests would, uh, the, sorry, the listeners would for sure be looking for where can I find more about David Wu? So can you please elaborate where can people find more of your work? Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, I left Wall Street because I wanted to share, you know, everything I know that I learned over a 20 year career on Wall Street with Main Street. Because I think that, you know what, too many people on Main Street are trading, investing with not enough information. I also believe that it's possible to make this stuff accessible to everybody. You don't need to have a PhD in economics like I do to actually understand economics. In fact, I tend to think that if you cannot understand what I'm saying, 
it's my fault and not yours. So I think from that point of view, that's what my YouTube channel is basically, um, is, is designed to do. I mean, David Wu Unbound, YouTube, every Friday, every basically week, you know, on Saturday, I put out a new video, whether it's, it's market, economics, or politics. If you want to learn more about my investment strategy, come check come check it out at davidwombound.com. And my real mantra on my own blog is that I don't just talk the talk. I also walk the walk. I've got my own portfolios and you can follow everything I do. It's very transparent because at the end of the day, you know, talk is cheap. You know, if I cannot basically, you know, you know, create actionable ideas that have a decent track record, then I'm wasting my time and I'm definitely wasting your time. David, it's a pleasure to see uh, somebody like me who has been on the other side of the of the pond, uh, the Wall Street pond of things, although I was in Europe for a bank, move to the other side of, of the pond and try to talk to Main Street like you're doing. It's uh, very generous of you to share your knowledge and thanks for being here with us on the Macro Trading Floor. I hope to have you back soon. Thank you, Alfonso. It's a real pleasure. Back on the Macro Trading Floor with my buddy Andreas, recapping the trade of the week. First of all, the guest was David Wu, a former chief economist and head of strategy for several investment banks, now moved from Wall Street to Main Street, running his own shop. Today's the 25th of August, 2022, and his trade, the, the main trade, let's say, was to be short to your treasuries. He also likes buying gold, but not at spot prices, rather possibly if we hit a certain price going on. Uh, so I'd like to uh, ask Andreas, how does he think Instru what, what instruments can somebody listening to this podcast try and use if he ever wanted to replicate these trades? Yeah, so the, the straightforward solution is just to be short the two-year uh, treasury future. Um, that's obviously not an instrument that everybody knows how to trade and everybody's um, not uh, got access to it. Uh, so um, the proxy trade in the ETF world would be to... Um, to be long the TBX ETF. Uh, so that is an ETF um, aimed at uh, being short the seven to 10 year point of the yield curve. But I mean, if if David is right, that uh, two year bond yields will go to 4%, I think that was what he said, then obviously this ETF will perform quite, quite decently as well, even though um, uh, you don't necessarily have the exact same uh, point on the yield curve to, to, to bet on. Uh, the other uh, potential option is to, um, to go short the, um, the very front-end um, iShares Treasury Bond ETF. So it's called SHV, uh, but you would need to borrow that and, and short it basically. Um, but I think the sort of the best proxy bet or the cleanest proxy bet is to go along the TBX or if uh, possible, you could just sell the two-year future also. Yeah. And uh, actually, I would say ranking the ways to replicate, Andreas, probably the, let's say, the cleanest ways to short the two-year future, the most retail, retail friendly way to do that would be to buy the TBX, which is an inverse seven to 10-year ETF. I mean, if yields go to 4% in the front end, probably the curve is going to flatten. So you don't get the same upside in terms of uh, potential returns, but you get more duration, by the mm -hmm. way, compared to doing the mm -hmm. front end. And you buy a simple ETF that effectively replicates a short bond position in the 7 to 10-year area. So it's, it looks to me like a, a more reasonable, retail-friendly way to try and replicate that. Borrowing the SHB is a, also a cleaner way to do it, but you need to be short an ETF and be able to borrow that. Yeah, if if I look at the trade right now, um, 
I think David is is on to something when it comes to this uh, potential slight positive surprise around Q3, in particular in the US. Um, we've seen gasoline prices um, fading uh, during the quarter. Uh, we've also seen uh, other building materials, etc., uh, dropping like a stone since since June. They've rebounded a bit, but uh, basically, if you look at the entire quarter, um, prices have actually dropped on, on quite a few necessities. Um, and um, you should probably expect wages to 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 keep increasing during a quarter like this with the tight labor market still, um, and therefore I think he's right that there will be sort of a temporary pocket of of, of relief um, in 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 the U.S. in particular this quarter. Um, I also think that's part of the reason why we've seen this equity rally uh, so far uh, during the quarter already. Um, so I I'm kind of tempted to say that I like the idea. Um, I'm probably more in the camp of just. Uh, adding some some exposure to the S and P five hundred, uh, maybe relative to 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 another equity index, as a way of playing this exact same story. Um, mm-hmm. Because I only think that the Fed will allow such a repricing of the front end of the curve should we get very decent economic data, etc. Uh, so it's it should also be a decent story for equities if if David is right. I Andreas, the the thing I. Uh, uh, I mean, if listening at the macro rationale that David put through, there is some pretty decent merit in considering the fact that the real wages, real purchasing power might pick up in Q3 because if inflation tends to stagnate a little bit quarter on quarter um, in Q3, while wages will, will not probably stagnate, you effectively get a mild pickup in real purchasing power for the private sector. And generally, it's pretty positive for household spending, which is a good portion of GDP. And I do understand that, and I think there is merit into that. Where I think there is, there is a little bit less merit uh, relies on a question I asked David, which is about the lag that a tighter financial condition and tighter monetary policy takes to translate into real economy. Like, I mean, we always talk about forward-leading indicator coincident and lagging indicators. The forward-looking indicators were pretty bad for the first set, six or seven months. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, generally speaking, real hard economic data tends to lag for, for a leading indicator by one or two quarters. So now it should be the time where the labor market and real economic growth should start to surprise on the downside. I just think it's more a timing consistency problem than anything else. And the, the lag between applying tighter monetary policy and tighter uh, financial conditions needs to be considered um, when assuming that Q3 will pick up merely from a mechanical pickup in, in real purchasing power. At least I would consider the opposite, the, this op- opposing, uh, oh my God, this op- uh, contrary argument. <laughs> Finally, you made it. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I, I also uh, wanted to remind you out there that uh, Saxo Bank um, is the sponsor of this episode. Uh, and in terms of uh, coverage of the uh, mentioned um, ETFs, etc., um, Saxo Bank basically offers uh, unparalleled market coverage uh, of uh, FX, uh, crypto, metals, uh, and moreover, you can basically trade um gold the way you like uh, using either futures options forwards or, or ETCs and then you can also gain access to a decent range of, of uh, government and corporate bonds um, in the Saxo platform. Yeah, the Saxo trading platform is pretty solid guys. If you want to discover more opportunities and how it works, you can actually go at uh, goto.saxo slash macro and you'll find more about all of what we just discussed. Back to the, to the macro rationale, Andreas, I, uh, 
just uh, slipped over my own tongue. I mean, I'm Italian after all. <laughs> what can I do? The fact that I can speak English should be already something I should be decorated with, <laughs> not, you know, not insulted by a Danish guy who actually got, gets teached English pretty well at school. Huh? Come on. <laughs> but you talking uh, English is probably one of the most bullish signals I've seen for the European economy. So. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I mean, the, the story is that being short to your treasuries, again, coming back to the, to the point is being short to your treasury needs to be always compared to what the market is pricing in. And right now, last time I looked at terminal rates in the US, which is uh, this morning, basically we were at 375, 380% as the peak mm. in terminal rates. And David is calling for the Federal Reserve to at least hit 4%. But most importantly, he told us that in every hiking cycle from the Fed, there has never been a single case, Andreas, where the Fed stopped hiking before nominal Fed funds rate were higher than the prevailing year-on-year inflation rate at that point. Mm. So real observed Fed funds rate, so Fed funds nominal minus today's inflation year-on-year, was actually a positive number. And he was basically asking me, so how does that work? If they go to 3.5% and they stop there, uh, the market was pricing cuts, basically. And in order to achieve a Fed that stops at positive real Fed funds rate, it means inflation needs to collapse at that point. Now, even now, if they go to 3.5%, they at least have to stay there and wait for inflation to meet the Fed funds rate at 3.5% on a year-on-year terms or, or later. So what do you make of this, of this theory, basically, for being short to your rates based on this assumption? I think it's a very fair assessment that the Federal Reserve is pretty spot focused when it comes to uh, real rates. Uh, obviously, they look at the so-called term structure of uh, inflation expectations versus the um, swap curve. But I think by the end of the day, the sort of natural point to look at for a central bank is the very front end, uh, since it's the part of the curve that they can actually manage. Um, and, and therefore, this theory makes a whole lot of sense. The question is, at at which point in time will you actually get to a just decent inflation number in spot terms? If you look at break-evens, um, so basically traded inflation uh, with a one-year, or two-year, or three-year horizon, um, I would probably say that the market expects the Fed to be very close to target by mid-next year, late yeah. next year. Um, and I mean, if if that's the case, then I think we should expect inflation to be back around, say, three and a half to four percent during the first or second quarter next year. Yeah. And then you can you can probably get the pivot, uh, or at least the pause, uh, with such a timing if if the market um, is is right on inflation. Yeah, I mean, the market is basically pricing the Fed to reach these observed real Fed funds above zero percent roughly in one year from now, one, one and a half years from now. That's because one year forward, one year Fed funds rate are priced to be at roughly 325, 3.5%, roughly 325% as we speak. And one year forward, one year inflation is priced to be at roughly 3%, which means that the Fed will have achieved, according to the market, in about a year, year and a half from now, the Fed will have achieved the result of, of getting to uh, positive observed real Fed funds rate, but this is contingent, Andreas, on inflation slowing down all the way from 9% to 3%, literally in one, one and a half years from now already, which historically would be a very harsh path downwards, which has been effectively never achieved unless there was a recession. So the market is spot on pricing, the perfect soft lending when the Federal Reserve can hike interest rates to 3.5%, the economy can kind of handle it. At the same time, this will cool demand just enough 
to slow inflation from 9% to 3%, and everybody will be happy on this. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I think that's <laughs> the way to conclude the macro trading floor for this week. I mean, obviously, the soft landing bet uh, hasn't got the best merits, <laughs> to say it the least. Uh, I think the hit ratio for soft landings is below 20%, maybe even below 10%, depends on the time horizon you look at, yeah. right? But it's very, very rare that the Fed actually manages uh, to, to sort of orchestrate a soft landing once they get into a hiking cycle. The usual um, modus operandi, to use a, 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 a tricky word, is basically just to hike until something breaks. And when something breaks, it's usually a signal that we're in a recession. Yeah. I think because it's 8.20 p.m. over here in Europe and my uh, pasta alla matriciana is waiting for me, Andreas, not aranciata, for Christ's sake, it's a matriciana. <laughs> now, that's waiting for me, and uh, I would like to say goodbye to everybody. Thanks for listening to the macro to the macro trading floor again. This is Alf speaking. And this is Andreas Steno speaking. We will add uh, the link to Saxo Bank in the details so you can find it below in your podcast app or on YouTube. See you next Sunday. Yeah.